0: again everybody and welcome back to Talking to Change and Motivates Undivion podcast with myself Glenn Hines and I'm joined again with my good friend Sebastian Kaplan.
1: Hi Seb. Hey Glenn, good Good. to talk to you again.
0: Yeah absolutely and we are very excited as always with a new guest tonight. Uh, We're talking to Didi Stout and before we introduce Didi in in a formal way, can I just invite you Seb just to just to remind people how they can contact us on the social media and
1: website. Certainly. Uh, glad to. So on Twitter, the handle is at change talking on Facebook. We have a page called talking to change. And if anyone's interested in sending us an email with feedback or questions or requests for future episodes, you can send us an email at podcast at podcast. GlennHines.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-H-I-N-D-S.com.
0: Fantastic, thanks, Seb. So the theme of tonight's conversation or today's conversation, because I'm, again, as has been a few occasions, we have different time zones in the conversation tonight. I'm talking to. You. It's just 11 p.m. here in Derry, Northern Ireland. Seb, you're at 6 p.m. in Winston-Salem, North Carolina and our guest didi stout what time are you out there
2: it is three o'clock in the bay area san francisco oakland
0: fantastic and tonight we're going to be talking about trauma-informed practice and motivational interviewing and as you've already heard that's didi's voice in the background didi is a is an undergrad has undergraduate degrees in both psychology and human sexuality from san francisco state university where she also earned her special majors masters degree in health counselling. She's a member of the International Motivation Interview Network of Trainers. Dee has worked in addictions and mental health worlds for more than 30 years and as someone with a personal history through addiction and other psychiatric diagnoses as well as a long family history of both, Dee bring, definitely brings a personal story to the conversation. DDA has extensive specialized training including motivational interviewing supervision training, solution focused brief therapy, cognitive behavioral therapies, community reinforcement and family training, harm reduction and now FIT PCOM which is client directed outcome oriented work around trauma. Didi has been a faculty at numerous Bay Area Colleges and Universities. Her areas of specialisation include curriculum development, substance use disorders, psychiatric disorders and treatment, public policy issues and addiction, trauma, addiction and women, harm reduction and addiction treatment, family work, communication, queer issues and treatment, criminal justice. Didi has made numerous appearances as an invited speaker at conferences including internationally, She has contributed to various best-selling books, as well as scholarly papers on treatment, including trauma. Didi is well known for her wicked sense of humour, which we're looking forward to tonight, and her ability to make complicated, evidence-based practice understandable. Her book, Coming to Harm Reduction, Kicking and Screaming, Looking for Harm Reduction in a 12-Step World, is widely available and has received positive reviews. Currently, she writes a blog for Families for Sensible Drug Policy Facebook, not non-profit group called Family Matters. Families matter. Dee Dee, you are most welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you. God, that was a hell of an introduction, Glenn.
0: Yeah. No wonder I'm so tired. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've 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 packed it in, Dee, Dee over the t- over this time, and uh, so we're, we're we're really keen to hear, you know, in any way that that your experience and knowledge and how it uh, can, I suppose, assist. People here listening to us tonight help them as practitioners or as, or as trainers or just people who are interested, particularly in the world of motivational interviewing. Yeah. And, yeah. and we're particularly keen to, to explore with you this, this approach or this idea of trauma informed practice and its relationship uh, with motivational interviewing. So maybe that's where we could kick off with maybe you giving us some insight into what is trauma informed practice.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. In fact, I'm going to read it directly from the book that kind of became my Bible. And When I was learning about trauma-informed work a few years ago, I had the distinct honor and pleasure of doing trauma-informed uh, trainings for the state of California over a grant that we had about two and a half years that we did that. And I did some motivational interviewing training as well. Uh, a tremendous amount. Uh, so trauma-informed practice, and this is going to be according to Maxine Harris and Roger Fallett, who wrote the book called Using Trauma Theory to Design Service Systems. Mm. And they say that to be trauma-informed means to understand the role that violence and victimization play in the lives of most consumers of mental health and substance use services And to use that understanding to design a system that accommodates the vulnerabilities of trauma survivors and allows services to be delivered in a way that will facilitate consumer participation in treatment. So in other words, to me, it's about appreciating, first of all, we look at the whole person, that they are a person and that their behaviors become viewed as coping mechanisms, as problems. Mm. And then the services wrap around that idea, and we look at the person, again, rather than just the symptom, which is generally in services what we're doing, right? We're looking to uh, minimize the uh, uncomfortability of those symptoms. And we treat the crisis rather than looking at well, why is this crisis happening? What's going on in this person's life or in their past in their life that has come to this point? And so now this has become quite an issue.
1: So it's really a a shift or an overall uh, model of care or way of thinking about care as opposed to a treatment method. Uh, Right. Yeah.
2: Yep. it's not an intervention. Mm-hmm. Sebastian, you got it. It's really an approach or, uh, you know, to borrow words, right, a way of being with people, mm. uh, which is one of the ways that I think it fits so nice in with motivational interviewing.
1: Right. And curious, um, so the, this shift, uh, you, you said you did a bunch of trainings or in California or were involved with some training efforts in regards to trauma-informed care, yes. Uh, how? Just wondering how much of a shift that sort of uh, concept or this approach was for the for the folks that you were training.
2: Mm. Uh, still is.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. It's ongoing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, it really is. It's it's difficult because what tends to happen. And I'm not trying to point fingers or blame that 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 is not my point, I'm trying to understand the system and the system. I give trainings to the staff and the staff gets on board and says, OK, this seems like a better way to approach people. We can see the benefits of this. Uh, we can see how it will help and might improve outcomes for clients and even be healthier for us as staff. Because we're not acting like police now. We're actually being counselors or therapists or at least health professionals. And then the system itself doesn't change. Hmm. And that's where I see the problem happening. And it's not just me. That's where most of us see that the the real challenge is how do we get the systems Hmm. to make a change? and to allow for these new ways of working with people uh, to happen. So if I can give a really quick example. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: one of the trainings that we did in California, and this came out of training all of our domestic violence shelters in trauma-informed ways. So uh, one of the things that we did, I didn't even know this, but most of the domestic violence shelters in our state uh, we're doing urinalysis on the women that came in. And if they tested positive for illicit substances or alcohol, frankly, then they were not allowed to stay. And so we looked at that and said, okay, now, first of all, are you doing drug treatment? And they said, no. And said, so I'm a little confused about why you're doing drug testing. And they said, well, we need to know. If people are using, and I always then ask the question, "Well, how come? What's that going to tell you?" Hmm. And I said, well, we want to make sure this is a safe environment for everyone, and we can't have women using because that will not be safe. So we decided that uh, after the conversation, at what might happen if you just stop drug testing. Very simple thing. And also, drug testing is quite expensive. So that could save money. And usually, unfortunately, that cost is passed on to the client, or the woman in this case. They started to do that in a couple of the uh, shelters. And I ran into them a year later at a conference. And without exception, they said, oh my god, it has completely changed how we see our jobs now. We don't have to be police anymore that if the women are using substances, that that's sort of a signal that something's wrong and we need to have a conversation with her. Mm. And what's going on? What's coming up? What happened during the day? What's the, what's the thing that you're trying to resolve? Uh, so it lowered the threshold for people coming into the shelters, obviously. And it also found a way to facilitate in the shelter and not feel more ashamed of their behavior. Now the other piece of this is we want to look at the the power differential, particularly in shelters and when we're working with people with intimate partner violence, right? Because what IPV is, that intimate partner violence, is a, a imbalance of power. So when I start doing your analysis On women, and I have to watch you while you're paying, forgive me here, you know, because that's part of the process. Well, what relationship is that kind of imitating? Hmm. The abusive relationship,
0: right? Yeah.
2: So, you know, when we looked at it in that way, in that frame, everybody got it and said, Oh my God, you know, we would never think of doing that. That's not our intention. I said, Of course it isn't. Nobody is blaming anybody, but because of the way it was set up and with the court's involvement, they were being forced to do these urinalysis. It what? got to the point where, even, excuse me for interrupting there, that yeah. the courts in one jurisdiction came back and said, you know, the women are doing so much better when we see them. What are you doing differently? And the shelter said the only thing we're doing differently is that we're no longer doing UAs, urinalysis. That's how remarkable the change was.
0: Mm. Wow. So there was, it, it, it was almost like there was a tradition or that, in, with an embedded assumption within the system that, yes. that their job was because women who take drugs are dangerous, our job is to protect the woman. What we have to do is minimize the risk to them that the assumption right. was that if you take drugs or take alcohol, you're an increased risk that, but when they right. change, when you encourage them to think about this differently, they, they saw it from a different place, but also much more significantly, their, their results changed dramatically. That, That's right. That the woman themselves, it sounds like were were not experiencing that power imbalance or that power differential, as you describe it, that, um, that the workers weren't policing them. So there was a, an immediate shift in their, their own experience in the shelter where they had come for safety. It actually was safe for them to do whatever yes. whatever it was they needed to do to deal with the, the consequence of the domestic violence or the intimate partner violence. Um, wow. Well, exactly. Right, right.
2: Exactly. And the staff were happier as well. Right, Because they got to go back to the job of being supportive,
0: hmm.
2: not behaving like police. And not that police are bad, right? It's just that that's not what these folks went to school for, right? <laughs> so we want separation of these roles. Uh, and we want to, again, the, the main undercurrent is we don't want to do anything that might look like that power differential that... A woman just came out of from the abusive relationship. And obviously this for a man as well in a violent situation. It just happened that these were women shelters
0: right. in the state.
1: Right. right. Mm. And it one thing that's striking me as well is that it would it this isn't just a way to inform how counselors can do their jobs differently. It it is a I imagine a way of setting any uh, professional sights differently on the work that they do and the people that they serve. So if you are a, a nurse yes. or a counselor or a secretary or um, a, any number of roles that, would, that, would, that are important in the functioning of, say, a, a domestic violence shelter, that they would all sort of be on board and begin to, to view the work in a different way.
2: Right everybody begins to see their role differently. They begin to see the people that they're working with differently as well. So if we're looking at uh, domestic violence shelters, we might say that we are I'm not viewing that woman who's in here as a victim anymore. I may look at her as more of a survivor with a lot of skills.
0: Hmm.
2: And just because she's using substances, well, you know, first of all, she's an adult because we don't have any children uh, that come to the shelter other than with their parent, their mother. Mm-hmm. So, using alcohol and some substances like cannabis now in the state of California is perfectly legal. So, what are we saying to that woman when we say, no, you can't drink if you're here? Well, why not? Hmm. Right, I can. I'm free to go at any time I want. I don't have to stay in the house. In fact, most of the women go out and do other things and get involved in the community or have a job or something along those lines. So, again, that idea of forcing rules on them that they would not have in their life in any other circumstance.
0: So this. So how are helping
2: them become, you know, self-determinant? And we're not, mm. and we're setting up another form of dependency, which is what they came out of.
0: So the intent, the intention of the center is to offer them a-, a gateway to a new way of being, and either consciously or unconsciously, it appears that the system wasn't taken into account that what they were doing in itself was mimicking some of the the challenges that these women were facing in their in their-, in their family homes.
2: Yep, you got it, Glenn. Right. That's exactly the point.
0: Right.
2: That we really want to stop and think. Are we do we have this rule in place mm. just because it's always been that way? Right. Or there maybe there was a good reason in the past, you know, that we can look at it that way. Right. Um, and now we know differently. Right. So let's review all these rules. And do we really need to have pages of rules? You know, can we kind of boil it down to a couple? Mm. Uh, Maybe we don't need any at all. We just need something—a uh, general ethos or a culture in in the home or the house, right, uh, or the facility, right—that says you, we treat each other with respect, and then we're going to have a conversation about what respect means. Right. <laughs> you
0: know? Right. Okay. And so, so, in some ways, it's almost like what what I suppose most people would think of what a family home would sound like that there's not there's not strict boundaries but there's shared values and shared understanding and and people striving to live up to those for themselves but also for the good of everyone else
2: that's right that's a great way to look at it i would just add that that would be a healthy family yes that we'd be in with
0: yes and yeah yeah which would which would make sense then if that that if the service is trying to offer offer these women an alternative way of of experiencing relationships that what they would hope to experience is a mo- the being modeled is the healthy version of what family life can be.
2: That's right. right. That's right. right. You know, what's it like to be in a warm, loving, compassionate family?
0: <laughs> yeah. You
2: know? right. Right. And a lot of times when these women have not experienced that, or they haven't experienced it in a long time, they've mm. kind of forgotten what that looks like. Uh, And the same is true when we look at addiction services or mental health treatment. You know, these, again, are often ostracized or often marginalized, right? Uh, And so that same sort of idea, how are we coming at them? Are we coming to them or are we coming at them, Yeah, as service providers?
1: It also strikes me that to do this sort of work or to adopt this sort of, uh, this, uh, this Model or system of care, it, mm-hmm. it 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 would require again anybody involved in the system to uh, periodically or maybe even on an ongoing way uh, mm-hmm. imagine imagine what it's like to. Sorry, Seb, I've lost your sound. I've st- okay, hello. I've, I think we had some technical difficulty there, but we should be <laughs> back on track. Um, but I I was thinking about, uh, again, a, a professional, a provider, a, a staff person adopting trauma-informed practice. And mm-hmm. one of the things I would imagine myself doing and, and needing to do, really, is to uh, sort of see the world through the eye of the person, or the, the recipient receiving care, or the, mm-hmm. the, in this case, the, the women in the domestic violence shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So very much consistent with that Rogerian idea of, of kind of imagining what that, the worldview is of that other person.
2: Right. And very much in keeping with motivational interviewing, Mm -hmm. I think, at least the way that I interpret MI, is very much that my job is really to listen to my client or clients, if if there's a family, so deeply that at the end of the conversation, while I may not agree or like or um, think that... it it was the right thing to do, you know, whatever their behavior was, I can stand back and I say, but I get it. Mm -hmm. I understand why someone might think this was the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, that, um, so it's about my fully entering their world as Carl Rogers used to talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then of course he used to say, the trick is, and I'm paraphrasing is to find a way to get back to yours. (laughs) (laughs) Once you've entered that world, Mm
1: -hmm. because
2: you don't want to get lost in it.
1: Sure, right. Yeah. Right, so we're, we're beginning to bridge that, uh, well, not really a gap. I mean, we're just identifying the places of overlap, really, between exactly. common-informed care and motivational interviewing. And so we've, uh, in a, in previous episodes, have talked about the, the MI spirit. And, mm-hmm. uh, so that's really kind of where we're at right now, right? It,
2: Absolutely. You know, I, when I was kind of looking over things again for today and thinking, when we look at SPIRIT and the four processes now coming out of MI3 with engagement being that first process that we're always doing to some degree or another, you know that, that's there around all the time. And I was talking about this with Alameda County yesterday with providers and saying they, they were looking at their own engagement statistics and saying, we're not reaching any engagement In certain communities, and in certain with certain people, and how do we improve that as a county behavioral health care services? Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, I'm there with my hand up. (laughs) I go motivational interviewing, trauma informed. (laughs) That's exactly how you do that, right? And so, looking at that and around the spirit of this idea of collaboration, really is the along with compassion. And then I sort of see the acceptance and evocation as being on top of that. Mm-hmm. But with that core of the compassion and collaboration, that is trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. You know, right. um, because otherwise, then I become the expert again, and now I'm telling you what to do, or I'm trying to pressure you somehow or persuade you somehow, mm-hmm. rather than engage you in the process and find out what it is that you want. Yeah, now in domestic violence or IPV, sometimes that will look at like, uh, I'm trying to pressure you or persuade you to leave the violent environment. And that's a mistake that we made for a very long time. You know, that's not my job, even though every fiber of my being may say, you should not be there, whether you're a man or a woman, you know, whoever is the abused, and sometimes they're the and the abused, right? It gets complicated. Uh, but that's not my decision to make, right? I know several people who have said to me, this, this other person is important to me, this relationship is important, or they're the mother the father of my children. I can't, I'm not just going to walk away. So we need to find a way to make this work. And, you know, in the past, I would have made the argument. No, no, no. You need to leave. (laughs) That's it. Mm. Or the same to me with uh, drug users is to say, well, just don't drink. Don't use a drug. Mm. Right. That's the first thing you have to have abstinence. And we say, why did we do that for all those years? You know, that might ultimately be a great goal. But that may not actually be helpful right now. It might even be harmful in some ways to try to do that
0: right because i suppose in in thinking about the spirit of motivational interviewing and and certainly in the conversations we've been having to date you know some some of what we've been exploring while it sounds quite simple it is it is actually quite a complex and, and and many levels quite a profound shift for us as practitioners to allow this idea to come into our world where that we meet someone whose life is in a chaotic state, uh, and, and 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 trauma in this instance has been visited upon them, and there we're now encouraging practitioners to recognise it's not actually helpful to tell this person who's experiencing trauma to get away from the source of the trauma, and and as right. you were describing it, it it brings up the the reality that. If we do step back we can recognize the ambivalence that an individual in that situation is feeling that th- yeah this is this is a perpetrator of violence towards me but on on, a, on an in another realm of our relationship they are also someone I feel close to they happen to be the father mm-hmm. or mother of my children mm-hmm. and you know it's not just I'm'm I'm, I'm not going to just give up the violence when I leave I give everything else up and th- th- it sounds like that's a price that it's really important for us practitioners to take into account and uh, that's
2: right mm. and that could be really difficult mm. for practitioners as you can imagine you know we it's hard to watch someone who's in that much pain or who has just come from the hospital Because their nose is broken or their eye is black or their ribs are bruised or, you know, God knows whatever it is. And and again, it can be the same thing if somebody just had an overdose. Hmm. You know, we can say, oh, my God, why aren't you why are you doing this again? What is it going to take? But that we know is not the way to engage people Hmm. in services. That's Hmm. actually a way to help them to not engage in services. Right, because we're not listening.
1: Hmm.
2: We've shut our ears down.
1: Yeah. And so with engagement, clearly there, there's a need to see the world from the other person's perspective in a yes. non-judgmental way, be able to express that in a way that that connects and is, is sort of consistent with the other person's experience. So all of these yes. we've talked about in previous episodes, consistent with. Uh, the work of Carl Rogers and mm-hmm. the MI spirit. Thinking about some of the other elements of MI, so mm-hmm. for instance, uh, evocation or, or change talk in particular as a specific mm-hmm. uh, concept. Uh, how how might you see that fitting with with the world of trauma informed practice?
2: That to me is also part of again back to collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is at the core part of that process, and that's always there, because if I'm really deeply listening to you, if I am focused on what you're saying and trying to understand it in its context, right, not just as words at me, um, then I have really engaged that spirit of MI, but I'm also using the processes of MI, that system, if you will, to borrow you know a term, I'm not sure if Bill or Steve would like that, but <laughs> of uh, engagement. Yeah, to me, they call it a process, the system, you know, however we want to describe it. That I'm gonna stay and I call it treading water. I'm gonna tread water with you. I'm not trying to pull us out yet. I'm not, I'm hopefully not trying to sink either. Hmm. You know, we want to keep our noses above water so we can breathe and stay alive, but I just want to hang out with you for a while as a practitioner. And I may do that for a very long time depending on the circumstance. You know, I've worked with people that their trauma was so deep. It, it, I swear, one young lady told me it took a year and a half for her to just to trust me. Mm-hmm. And I was honored that she ever did. Mm. Yeah, uh, it was kind of to that level. Um, and so I have to be in there for the long haul around that that doesn't mean that she was not able to make any changes in her life for a year and a half. She made many changes. Uh, she didn't get to complete all of them and she didn't get to the ultimate goals sometimes, but she was on a path and working and as paths are, you know, they do this and they go back and they come forward and they move along. You know, uh, And so she was able to do that. And that was the collaboration that was also the focus we kept that view that there's something else that's coming i can see it and it's not the next train coming to hit me it really is something that's possible in my life but i also have to be careful because if i look too far ahead it that can be overwhelming for people Yeah, because they just have not experienced that kind of goodness in their life, that positivity and love, um, that compassion Mm. that allows for that kind of dream to even be thought of to be possible.
1: So it's important not to get too far ahead. Mm -hmm. Uh, Important to stay right there with the clients. And um, while also um, as part of the collaborative process, to uh, or, or I suppose in the MI world, the collaborative elements of of, M, of the spirit. Yes. Um, to to really focus on the ideas and the thoughts and the wisdom that the other person has, and to draw that out. That's uh, right. Yeah. So and for, I think
2: so, go ahead, Sebastian.
1: Well, I was gonna you you were talking about those conversations that uh, the the well intentioned conversations that often don't go well when. Mm-hmm. When a provider's basically pleading for someone to leave their partner, um, that, that MI would fit quite well with trauma-informed practice because it wouldn't be about telling the person what to do. It would be about drawing mm-hmm. out what their ideas are about how they might make change.
2: That's right. And if you can imagine coming from any of these groups of marginalized people, whether we're talking about, and they all have trauma in them. That is one of the underlying features that nearly everyone that sees someone for mental health services or for substance use services or housing services, or you know, we can kind of go around and around. There's some trauma in there, Mm. uh, almost for everyone. So we sort of say, those of us in the trauma-informed world, act as if everyone you see has some history of trauma. Mm. Just go ahead. It won't hurt. To keep these principles in the back of your mind, just like we do with MI, it may not be the intervention that we utilize, right? MI Mm. isn't appropriate all the time, Mm. but the spirit is of MI. So, you know, hold on to that, and then let's see where we're going to go, depending on what the client's needs are and what their desires are and what they're willing to do, right? Mm. So the same thing, and when we're looking at marginalized folks, I think one of the core pieces that often doesn't get talked about is that idea, again, back to the idea, I can't think of my life being functional and happy uh, because it hasn't been that, or maybe it's never been that. Um, And so for you to even ask me what I want is overwhelming and welcomed and frightening and exciting, (laughs) all those things at the same time. So you know, kind of having to sit with that and saying it's okay if you don't know what you want right now. Maybe where you start is with what you don't want. Hmm. You know, most people can be pretty clear of what they want in hmm. their life, or what behavior they don't want to engage in anymore, uh, and start at that place, and then down the road, gently nudging as you hear more from them of what they do want. And start guiding in that direction.
0: Yeah. So in some ways, it's, again, recognizing that change can happen in two different directions. One is towards Mm -hmm. being different by bringing something into your life, but also Mm -hmm. by being different by getting something that's there out of your life. Yes. And as a practitioner whose whose job and and desire is to help this be different for somebody, it, it may be about identifying which direction is the most suitable for this individual to begin with. But ultimately by by going left, you always end up right. And if you turn right, you're all going to turn up left anyway. Right.
2: Yeah. Mm. One of the things I like to do is to ask somebody uh, if we're going through kind of what are the things that you want to look at Mm. in life? And let's say they have three or four things, different areas that they'd like to work on at some point. And I'll say, so which one of those do you think you would be most successful changing in if you were to do it to start on that process today? Mm. And they're often surprised because they think I'm going to ask them what's causing you the most trouble. And oftentimes one that's causing the most trouble is the hardest thing to change. And what I know, uh, what we've learned about change, right, is that change, positive successful change begets more change. You get energy from that. You get, um, you build your confidence from that. And failure begets failure. So if I fail at this big change, then I tend to get more beating up on myself and more depressed and you know, I'm not gonna try again because look, I just screwed it up. So looking at a baby step that I can take towards something that's fairly and direct that I can be successful with, the first thing I do is gonna build my confidence to try the next thing and the harder thing. Mm-hmm. So that's where I like to go with folks. And explain to them why I'm suggesting this. Now, obviously, they can do whatever they like, and I will work in any way they want to on that. But I do make the suggestion,
1: yep. you
2: know, this might be a way to consider. What yep. do you think about that? Yeah.
1: And uh, j- I'm just thinking about listeners that perhaps are, maybe they're already in a trauma-informed Practice, yes, uh, or maybe they're not, but and, and it's it's they're not in a really a position to change the sort of fundamental way that a system operates. Yes, right? but maybe they're a provider, a counselor, or a, a other healthcare practitioner that's working with people that have experienced trauma. What might you say in a more kind of individualized way, or in a you know in a at the level of the conversation, right, as well, opposed to okay the, the mm-hmm. system, like, how how do you see MI helping in, you already given some examples, but with, without necessarily diving into, you know, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Topics <laughs> like that, right? But, um, yeah, how do you see it, how do you see MI being helpful?
2: Well, let me go back, if I could, to the thing that is, so a couple of things. So one is that where... Trauma-informed and am I truly intersect is in that compassion and deep listening, right? Engagement, Th- those pieces are right here. The next place and what that helps to create is a relationship and a positive, caring relationship. With trauma, that's where trauma comes from, is from not having that kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. And we see it in evidence all the time. You look at Scott Miller and Barry Duncan and what makes change. um, The Heart and Soul of Change, the name of their book. And they have said over and over, looking at meta-analysis of what works in in therapy, what works mostly to make change is the therapeutic relationship. The second thing that works is what the client brings, their strengths. And that's very MI. Right. So let's look for your strengths. Let's look for things that you've done positively. Begin to build on those things in baby steps, which is what I always suggest. And then secondly, building that rapport, that relationship that will help give that person you're working with some confidence to start to work on their possibly even their trauma. Now, not necessarily with you that perhaps with someone else, if they have a good relationship with you, whatever your role is, they're more likely to engage in another healthcare professional mm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Bad interact- interaction with one of you guys, I'm more likely to say, screw the system. I'm not going to engage with anybody. It's none of their business. This is mental health and that's private or you know whatever the, the issue is. right? Mm. And that's what happened. That's why we can't get... We can't engage a lot of communities, um, including plain old you know, white, whatever we, we are called, Western Europeans these days, Right? it's the same idea. Nobody wants to have a, a mental illness. Nobody wants to be seen as a victim. Nobody wants to have a, a drug problem. You know? So how do we engage people and keep them engaged? And that's what we've learned, things like housing first is so important get the housing get people stabilized in housing and what happens their drug use begins to decline their symptoms of their mental illness begin to diminish without any treatment isn't that amazing
1: Just and take, it's uh, that
2: relationship
0: sure sure and it's almost like you're describing by meeting the basic needs by meeting if we were to think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs if we oh,
2: thank you take yeah, take yeah. care of the exactly. first things
0: first <laughs> and the second things will come they will arrive for themselves and yeah you know it, it it i was struck a few minutes ago when you were talking about the way we would it, maybe interact with people um and mm-hmm. saying why would you do something like this and what came to me was you know that's a re- that's a really interesting question if we change the tone of her voice and i think it was mm-hmm. informing what you were saying is you know why are you doing it that way and mm-hmm. I'm also conscious that we've been talking quite a bit about domestic abuse and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, partner violence. But my guess is is that there's a lot of people that maybe listen to this here working in alcohol or family services or criminal justice yep. or mental health. And it sounds like what you're inviting them to consider is, is where where are the traumas that may be present in this individual's okay. life that have brought them to, your attention because of their alcohol use, because of their mental health, because of their uh, relationship or involvement with criminal justice or mental health presentation, that Mm -hmm. it's almost like you're saying that if we look close enough, that the likelihood is, is that there is trauma there. That's right. And And because it's there, if we take this into account, that the way they're behaving makes sense under those conditions.
2: That's exactly the point, Glenn. That's right. perfect. That's just where we want practitioners and systems to begin to understand that people's behaviors make sense given their history. right So if you don't know the history, then their behaviors look pathological. They look crazy right. You know, those are the kinds of things that we say. right Why in the world are you doing X, Y, and Z? Hmm. Yeah, you know? what's mm. the matter with you? You're an intelligent person. Mm. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Yes. Well, there is a reason. People always have reasons for their behaviors, right? And we're not suggesting that people always know what their reasons are or that they even understand that they have a trauma history.
0: Right. So that the, 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 the trauma informed practitioner may recognize some of the sources of this trauma, whereas this is simply their lives. Uh, but by treating them with this compassion, with this understanding, with this willingness to to sit with them in that initial period without a, a demand to move anywhere, that that in itself can be very beneficial, very supportive and yeah. potentially radically different for them as well.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah, it really gives, it's an invitation to have a conversation i think is where we start Hmm. right and that's what i'm good at Hmm. to say just you know come on in have a seat grab a cup of tea you know let's just chat about what's going on in your life and how you envision it turning out or how you envision the next five minutes uh you know sometimes with folks the, the people that I've trained, certainly, they're not people that I generally work with anymore, but I have in the past that their lives are so chaotic right now that they can't even think about next week. Mm. You know, they're thinking about tonight. You know, where am I going to stay or what am I going to do? Am I going to use again? Am I not? How am, well, am I going to get my medications or, you know, all of these sorts of things. Mm. So, um, and I think MI is great for that. It just says, that's okay. Let's just talk about tonight then.
1: Yeah, you know? it's a very opening, open and uh, accepting yeah. stance with people, for sure.
2: I love it when Steve Rolnick was the one that always would say, "If you know, stop asking what that person, if the person is saying that they can't make that change, okay, you know, whatever somebody else may be, a stakeholder may be asking them to make, whether it's the insurance or the provider or their parents or their partners, you know police, the three P's, whoever it is that's asking it of them. Why don't you ask them instead what they are willing to do, or maybe what they're able to do Mm. right now? You know? Okay. (laughs) Let's
0: get get this ball rolling. Yeah. In the easiest way possible. That's right. That's in a way that suits you.
2: That's right. Work smarter, not harder.
1: Right. Hmm. Well, we're, uh, Keeping an eye on the clock here, and yeah. probably needing to start winding down. Uh, we we often will um, begin the closing with a question for our guest about what a uh, a recent interest is of theirs, or or perhaps a, a new direction that they're thinking about in terms of their MI work. Uh, you've been talking about some recent interests, or even some projects that you've been working on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, currently. Mm-hmm. As far as far as trauma-informed practice, just wondering if there if there was something uh, kind of a new idea, or new take, or new uh, a new application that you've been thinking about or trying
2: lately? Yeah, I think um, interestingly enough that the work that I do more and more these days has to do with using motivational interviewing, and frankly, trauma coming from a trauma-informed approach is with families. Mm-hmm. You know, doing the blog for uh, FSDP has been really instrumental in that work, and I also do some training for a group called the Center for Motivation and Change out of New York City Mm
0: -hmm.
2: where they've partnered with a group in uh, the United States, and we train parent volunteers to work a hotline. That other parents who have kids with drug problems, or they may be concerned they have drug problems, can call in and get free peer-to-peer counseling for X number of sessions. And our job is to train those coaches, uh, or wannabe coaches.
1: The peer coaches.
2: Yes, the peer coaches.
1: And you used an acronym there, or a a series of letters, FSDP, What, what is that? Yes,
2: thank you, Families for Sensible Drug Policy. Is a fairly new nonprofit group, has quite a Facebook presence, and is working in the next year to expand some services. Mm -hmm. That looking at how to help families in a new way. You know, um, the last blog that I did, we did a two-part for July and August on the concept of tough love and how that is harmed not just the individual on the receiving end of it, but also the families themselves. And I talk about the fact that my own family has never healed from our interactions when I was a teenager, which has now been 50 years ago. You know, um, and just how sad that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we know differently now. We can do it in a different way. And one of those is starting with an invitational approach with motivational interviewing and thinking and approaching things with that lens of trauma informed appreciating that everyone in that system is getting traumatized.
0: right?
2: Yeah. And that can be hard for the parents to see their kids because they see them, well, they're using drugs, so how are, they're not feeling anything. They obviously don't care. Mm. That's not usually true at all. In mm. fact, it's quite the opposite, mm. right? So everybody has to kind of look at everybody else's role a little differently too.
0: To really promoting uh, empathy within family systems.
2: Yeah. There's another I'm involved with that a fellow that has made what he calls empathy circles and we're looking at building uh, towards a MOOC um, to train other people in an open forum, right? And he had an interview with Bill because he's using Bill Miller's latest little book on listening well. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you've seen that one, little paperback. Amazing. It's taking the principles of ORS and active listening out of MI and saying this can be utilized and we'd love it to be utilized by everyone Hmm. and here's how to do it. Mm -hmm. Simple little, you know, cheap little book. I'm using it in one of my classes uh, as extra credit. I mean, it's great. So what we're trying to do there is to build a culture of empathy because as you may be aware in the United States right now, we don't have a lot of empathy and compassion you know, um, at some levels, mm-hmm. do at others. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to increase that.
1: Right. Well, fantastic. This has been a, a, a wonderful conversation, Didi. And uh, we also ask uh, our guests mm-hmm. if if uh, some, if some the audience, people in the audience wanted to reach out to you or get in contact with you. What, what are some of the, the easier ways to do that? To about There's, do.
2: The easiest way is probably to go to my website which is DD Stout Consulting, and DD is D E E D E E, stout like the beer, S T O U T, consulting.com. And you can click on my email address from there uh, and contact me that way. Send me an email.
1: Okay. Yeah, Very
2: I'd good. love to hear from people. Fantastic. It'd be great. Thank you so much, you two. Yeah. It's a real pleasure. Yeah.
0: It's, it's, it, it feels like I'm leaving the table before I've. Of- before I'm fully satisfied, DD. To be honest, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and I and I know that there's there's a lot of questions that other people are are going to be left with after today. But it's but again, it sounds like the key message tonight was, you know, that that by understanding this individual, that that in itself is helpful. Yep. Answering the question, why are you doing yep. this? Not with uh, not with aggression or judgment, but just by curiosity. Right. Not
2: with the finger going. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But instead, with a sense of curiosity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, DD.
2: Thank you so much, yeah. both and, of you.
0: And again, just to remind people to follow us on Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. the And do you want to make comments on anything that we've talked about or ask questions? It's uh, podcast at com. But until the next time, thank you, Didi. Thank you, Seb. Thank
1: you, everybody. Thank you so much, Didi And Glenn, great talking to you.